All right. Here we go. Quiet. Problem. Hello and welcome to the Big Picture Podcast, where we take a look at the latest movie news, the films of today and yesterday, and we try to put it into some sort of context. I don't know how well we do. Seated across some... Across some... confidence-inspiring. I know, I know. <laughs> but I don't have much confidence today. I'm just one of wow. those devs. I know. Not, not that I don't have confidence in you. Anyway, sitting across <laughs> the microphone from me today, as always, is Film Buff Online Editor-in-Chief... Rich Drees. And seated across the microphone from me is a very non-confidence-inspiring uh, best friend of mine and Film Buff Online contributing editor, Natasha Bogutsky. How you doing? <laughs> How are we doing? <laughs> this is the worst opening we've ever done. Really? I'm loving this opening. It feels so real. So wow. natural. We just dived right into our bullshit. I yeah. love it. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Hey, guys, uh, welcome back. <laughs> yeah. You missed us for this whole week? Um, anyways, um, it's been a week. It has um, been I've a been, week. Uh, let's see, recovering from New York Comic Con and Con Hangover. Yeah, a bit, bit of con hangover, which well, is. Well, you didn't which have very more, long to last. Until... Which is more a symptom of the soul than of the body. Yeah. Well, yeah, you're tired, but there's there's a I miss my people <laughs> kind of a thing going on too. Uh but yeah, turned right around and 3 days later I was uh neck deep into the Philadelphia Film Festival. You did and I not have am. much of a turnaround. No. That. No, just barely enough time to do some laundry and <laughs> thankfully. And um yeah, let's see opening night film was American Fiction. With Jeffrey Wright. You and... had a, gr- a lot of things oh, that my were gosh. good to say about that. Yes, I did. My my review is up on the site already. One of the year's best films, honestly. It's scathingly funny, witty, sharply uh, insightful. Jeffrey Wright gives a performance that if – I hate to jinx it, but if he's not nominated for an Oscar, I am burning down all of Hollywood. <laughs> well, the thing is, is – Jeffrey Wright should have been nominated for an Oscar by now. He's so good in everything. Yes. I actually recently discovered um, the Angels in America film mm-hmm. that they did for HBO in the early aughts. Holy shit, he's good in that. Yes. He's good in everything, but here yeah. he he's allowed to be comedic. I mean, yeah, he's he's in a couple of Wes Anderson <laughs> I was just going to say, have you seen Wes Anderson? <laughs> but but this is a different style of comedy. You know, Wes Anderson's stuff is very formalized, and I love it for that. Here, the comedy is much more about his character's reactions to situations. This person is very acerbic. And so, like, if he gives a withering insult, it is a withering insult. <laughs> and it's just even, like, the small stuff, some of his reactions at things are just small but hilarious. It's it's a fantastic performance. Um, in a movie full of some great performances. Sterling K. Brown is fantastic. Issa Rae. Uh, Leslie Uggams as his mother, who is slowly uh, succumbing to Alzheimer's, is heartbreaking. Just a fantastic film. I also got to see Alexander Payne's new film, The Holdovers, with Paul Giamatti. I know you were looking forward to that. Yes. It's fantastic. I'd say it's maybe a half star below American fiction. Really enjoyed it. Uh, this new actor who plays the kid opposite Giamatti. It's his first film. He holds his own against Paul Giamatti, that's for goodness sakes. Yes. That's a feat. That is a feat of magic. There are times, though, where kids have just come out of nowhere and delivered such the most beautiful, natural performances that you know that they're just going to be big stars. What? Oh, I, th- I thought you were going to go against Paul Giamatti and bring up um, that movie Blank Check from the from the aughts. Never seen it. So. Oh, it's, it's a kid's movie where he's kind of basically the bad guy against Frankie Moon. Is, oh, I that's think. not Blank Check. That's or, Big Fat Liar. Or Big Fat Liar, whatever. <laughs> like, I was said to all, pick up a... <laughs> all of it is just like some giant kind of like car. I was expecting a little blue man. <laughs> I remember it very well. It's, it's all just like one kind of monosyllabic film that just existed 
for kids that I noted existed and didn't give a crap about because <laughs> I wasn't the audience. But don't forget, he was in um, Big Mama's house too. That's true. <laughs> we all got to pay our dues. Um, wow. Okay. Can we talk about his very, very small performance as one of the servants at the Laramie House in the remake of Sabrina that came out in 95? Wow. That's a deep cut. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. Yeah. It's one- I, hey, look. All I know is I first saw Paul Giamatti pretty much when he burst into the film in um, Private Parts as Howard Stern's station manager. And I just remember... That was a that was another film where I was just like, holy crap, who is this guy? I need to watch everything he does ever again. <laughs> Not realizing he was going to be in a movie with Frankie Muniz. But <laughs> <laughs> well, here's the thing uh, and why I bring up and we'll get into this in a few minutes, although this would make an incredible segue into what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> I think uh, that the remake of Sabrina from 95 with the wonderful Julia Ormond and uh, Harrison Ford. And Greg Kinnear. And Greg Kinnear. Is one of the better examples of times where remakes are just as good as the originals. Uh, it's it's not, not quite as good, but it's, it's still a decent movie. It's right. I would say I, – okay. So I think they're both fantastic and I think that the 95 one has a little bit more rewatchability status. Mm-hmm. But the original – Billy Wilder with Audrey Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart is just such a classic. It's so beautiful and charming. Uh, It's just sometimes if you're looking for something that's just a little easier to swallow, go ahead and throw on the 95 version because it's still going to give me that vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Mm, True. Um, But yeah, so I saw those two. Um, I saw Maestro. The new Bradley Cooper film that looks at the life of Leonard Bernstein. Leonard Bernstein, yes. And I liked it in bits and pieces. I'm not sure it entirely gelled for me. Um I I only saw it about 14 hours ago. <laughs> so I'm still kind of processing it a little bit. I wish I liked it better. There are things I admire about it. And I was like, oh, this is a neat choice. And then they go do some other things that I didn't like quite as much. Some great performances in it, though. You know, nothing I can, you know. Are we looking at nominations for Carrie Mulligan? Oh, my God, yeah. Well, obviously, <laughs> Carrie Mulligan's going to have a nomination. Bradley Cooper's probably going to get one or two out of this whole thing. You know who's really good in it as Leonard Bernstein's uh, sister? Mm-hmm. Sarah Silverman. Really? Yes, absolutely. I didn't. I kind of was like sitting there going, oh, this actress looks a little like Sarah Silverman. And then it wasn't until later in the movie that I was like, oh, wait, it is Sarah Silverman. Uh, not a trace of comedy in this role. She, you know, it's a pure dramatic role, just as the sister who kind of maybe needles him a little bit and provides a little bit of support to um, his wife, things like that. It's It's not a big character arc or anything like that through the movie but it was a nice supporting role that i i was really impressed with well i i'm kind of glad because it so sarah silverman actually gave a little bit i think it was part of one of her stand-up specials i may be wrong here don't quote me on it but she gave a little bit of a speech about a lot of jewish roles in the community being played by non-jewish actors Mm -hmm. Um, obviously we knew there was a little bit of controversy when Bradley Cooper was, uh, released with some prosthetics. Yes. But he had the blessing of the Bernstein family. And honestly, that's the only thing I care about. That's the only thing yeah. I care about and, too. And to be frankly, frightfully honest here, um, and to quote Ocean 13, the nose plays. It, I don't think it, it didn't distract me. Okay, well that's good. So, but I like the idea of you know you're telling um you're telling a story of someone who was a pillar of that community and just a genius all around when it came to music. So having Sarah Silverman kind of come in, it's it's saying we hear the argument that you are been you have been making, we agree with it. Come join us and be a part of the solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wish the solution were a slightly better movie. <laughs> wow. I'm, uh, no, I'm not saying that in a negative way. But you – It's it's a darn good movie. It's you will gonna, admit it will get her 
more noticed for yes. being a dramatic player now. Yes, correct. And I, I hope to see more from her in this vein because I thought she was very good. Good. Um, at the closest we've ever seen her in dramatic roles before, to my knowledge, off the top of my head, is when she would be like a supporting character on a sitcom like Greg the Bunny back in the 90s oh, dear where Lord. she didn't get a whole lot of the comedy but you know she was just kind of part of the ensemble so this was a very nice new side of her to see um still got a couple of more films uh at the festival that I will be seeing over this coming week and I'm looking very excited to it um a couple of films that they have on the schedule that I've already seen Thanks to Sundance and Tribeca, um, I would recommend going Varsity in Mariachi, which is about a Texas mariachi, uh, Texas high school mariachi band preparing for competitions. That's an um, interesting combo. Oh yeah, well, you know, in high school, the high school marching bands all have competitions, and you know, I was a big band nerd in high school so <laughs> so i could kind of you know and had to go through that whole process of competitions and stuff like that so i could sit there and relate to what uh these kids were going to it made a lot of sense to me you know so it made me an easy target to be empathetic <laughs> to, to what they were you know uh going through and everything oh and, rats they found their demographic <laughs> aging band nerds um yes <laughs> well yeah thanks <laughs> you're um, welcome also the documentary richland about a town uh up in the pacific northwest that was founded just to you rich just to enrich uranium for the manhattan project and the town is still there now. It's kind of grown beyond that. But it's still kind of wrestling with the idea that, you know, we helped develop the first atomic bombs um, and is the school kind of like logo featuring an atomic explosion really the best way to, you know, be for kids? You know, so, hey, here's that thing that killed thousands of innocent people so you know it's it's a very interesting film uh it's just a look at the community a look at some of the things that they're kind of um struggling with in terms of their legacy and how to um you know process and view it uh very very fascinating uh film um another documentary called kim's video is also screening i saw this at tribeca i think no i'm sorry at sundance and it's not good oh I'm yeah, sorry. I mean, Kim's video is kind of legendary as a place in Manhattan where you could go to get really cool underground stuff, stuff that was hard to find, i.e. this is all like bootlegs, <laughs> and um, along with, you know, some other more mainstream stuff. Uh, when Tarantino was um, on Broadway very shortly in that revival of Wait Until Dark, mm -hmm. when he was – you know, on his off time, he was writing Kill Bill. He's working on his first drafts of that. He would go down to Kim's video to look for uh, action films, uh, Hong Kong action films, Asian action films to to watch for inspiration, uh, for research. So, you know, this is kind of a, it's a very storied place. And I don't think the documentary does it justice. It's more about the documentary uh, director as he's trying to figure out what happened to – uh, the collection after the store closed and it's he kind of inserts himself into the story more than it really needs and yeah there's be a careful about you know yeah. kind of putting yourself into your own narrative mm -hmm. i mean obviously like the works of michael moore speak to that some of yeah. sometimes he does it really well i think roger and me is fantastic um there are other times when he does it and it does not work as well and I don't know if the Kim's video director was kind of trying to think he was the next Michael Moore or something like that <laughs> in terms of like like a weird subject matter. It just didn't it just didn't work this time and there's a better story to be told, a better way to tell a story about Kim's video than than this movie was. Mm. So what else happened this week besides film festivals uh, and Comic-Cons? I'll be damned if I know. <laughs> I've, been, I've been like so neck deep in those. It's been hard to keep up with everything else. Um, uh, what did we say Taylor Swift was going to 
92, finish out the I week think. weekend with. Yeah. Um, so yeah, looking at the the box office on that. Um, How well did Tay Tay do? <laughs> How much is she going to change filmmaking? Uh, yeah, she did uh, ninety two point eight for that opening weekend, and that includes uh, Thursday night previews. That's pretty damn close. Mm-hmm. And considering that they really didn't know that they were going to have previews until. I mean, a lot of literally about until... 24 hours beforehand, and that yeah. includes the theater chains. We talked about that last which week, which is insane to me because if they had let people know that there were going to be previews, they would have done bigger box office because oh, they would yeah. have fucking sold out that night. Yeah, there are, there are some mistakes that have been made with this. For as savvy as a business move that it ultimately is appearing to be, I mean, as of right now, with uh, just um, this Thursday and Friday, we're recording on a Sunday, on the October 22nd. Uh, so I don't have any numbers from any concrete numbers that I'm seeing from yesterday or today, but it's looking to be approximately a thirty thirty two million dollar weekend. Um, and given the fact that you know, it's funny uh, that you know there were no screenings of it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Mm-hmm. It's so funny to look at. Uh, the one box office chart, which is just like a graph going up of showing, you know, where where <laughs> and then all the games straight are. drop. It's it's a graph and then it plateaus, you know, because mm-hmm. the uh, the x axis going up is the total uh, domestic box office. So it's like, yes, we made some money and then we stopped and now we're making some more money again. It's <laughs> it's it's, it's kind of comical to look at. Uh, even worldwide, I mean, I think opening weekend it brought the entire grouping to like 132. Mm-hmm. Worldwide opening weekend, which was not half bad. No, 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 not at all. But what's interesting is I'm looking at the figures on a website called Mm thenumbers.com, which is a really good website for box office reporting. And what they do with their graph, they show you the actual total domestic box office as it goes. And it kind of shows you what the projections normally would be. You know, it gives you a a range going uh, forward. And... Looking at the range as of October 22nd, um, which is today, you know, we're looking at roughly about, like I said, 130 million altogether domestically. Mm-hmm. Um, but this could have been up above 100, anywhere between 150 to 200 million had they been out for those three days, that Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Oh, they had damn. screenings that day. So, again, I mean, I'm not sure what the thinking is, is the thinking that, well, that's those are school nights for a majority of my fans, so maybe not do that. Or I think it's I think it's a nice way of saying I know that a lot of people are going to come see this on the weekend, so at least give other films during the week a chance to I don't make know their if, money. I don't know if that's the thinking there at all. Well, I'm trying to be nice. Okay, fair. <laughs> that that's that's a hell of a. a <laughs> That's a hell of a concession to make here. Well, you know I'm right. <laughs> There's a reason why Exorcist Believer got pushed back an entire week That's instead true. of opening on Friday the 13th, which normally would have been like, "Ooh, we it's a spooky day during spooky month. Let's go see a spooky movie on yeah. this day." Instead, yeah. Taylor Swift took took it because 13 is also her lucky number. It, it's a big thing among Swifties okay. for that number 13. <laughs> No, I'm, I mean it. It's huge. And so they put her there and pushed Exorcist back a week. So at least Exorcist would have a chance at making some money. The one thing that I'm a little irritated with, with some of this box office reporting, though. Oh, no. Taylor Swift beat out Killers of the Flower Moon. That only made $23 million this weekend. And it's like you're not vying for the same audience here, people. You're okay. They're both long movies, but who cares beyond that? I mean, the Taylor Swift concert movie audience doesn't have a whole lot of crossover, I don't believe, with Killers of the Flower Moon. I think it does. Okay, explain. Explain yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're looking at um, Taylor Swift's major demographic. Majority of it is women. Majority of it possibly has kids but the majority of it is freaking millennials people who grew up with her since the beginning or may have come to it in the past few years but you're you're looking at people in the age range of between 
um, and this is where it links over with Gen X a little, of being between 20 and 35. That's your big age range. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to not only just be a Swifty, but also be, you know, you like movies as well, you're going to have a lot of overlap in the middle there. Probably between the ages of 26 and 32. I... I... Don't disagree with you. I think we maybe ended up, you're we ended overestimating up, that audience size. Uh, no, I think it's actually a lot bigger than you think. We just ended up at a Sunday morning screening with a lot of kids. That's true, too. Yes. That is because true. Because yeah. that's when the, parents the could bring their kids. The girl who is handing out the bracelets to, <laughs> to you is probably not going to see Killers of the Flower Moon. Granted. No, but the parents might. That's true, yes. I wonder, are there parents... I mean, well... Probably not, no, actually, because Killers of the Flower Moon is a solid hour longer than than uh, the Eras tour. So, How long is freaking Killers of the Flower Moon? It's like three and a half hours. The Eras tour was three. Yeah. The Eras not... tour is two and a half. Uh, no. Well, with the, the other extraneous bullcrap around it, it's three. You know, yeah. the trailers and stuff. The trailers but, weren't that many, But I though. dare say, got, though, like parents aren't going to want to drop their kids off to see one movie and see something else if the thing they're seeing is longer and then their kids are just kind of like roaming around the lobby of the th- movie theater for 20 minutes. They're, uh, they're not they're, prone if, to do that. So True. But if they're all going in a, a group, then, like, their kids can go with their friends and maybe, like, an older sibling into See the Eras tour – we're going to go see it. We'll meet you back here. Here's some money for the arcade. Possible. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot of different, you know, I mean, combinations I've done that of shit with my mom. I know. There's a lot of different ways that, you know, that thing can wear, work out. So maybe there is some crossover of parents dropping their kids off for eras and going, you know what? We really need some grown up alone time. <laughs> so let's go see Killers of the Flower Moon. But, uh,. They seem very committed to keeping Killers of the Flower Moon out. Uh, they spent $200 million on it. Uh, they're going to keep that in theaters as long as they can through award season. And then it'll go straight to Apple where they're going to make even more money on the streaming side mm-hmm. with it. Well, I mean. Well, we'll Apple doesn't that. care. No, the Apple stuff, doesn't care. The, the stuff they produce is just so they can have some cool stuff to entice you to buy Apple products to watch it. <laughs> Okay, and that's where their money is, and that's where they get their money. Well, here's the thing. Obviously, we know that Prime and um, Netflix have had their a lot of their award season films over the past few years picked up by Criterion. Mm-hmm. And Martin Scorsese's last movie, The Irishman, got also a Criterion, Criterion release. Mm-hmm. Have we had one of those from Apple yet? A collaboration there? Yeah, yeah, Coda is not in the Criterion Collection as of now. Which is interesting to me because you would think that Criterion would want to preserve the first streaming film that won a Best Picture. It might not be a case of Criterion not wanting to do it. It might be a case where Apple, Apple does doesn't want to get rid of it. Doesn't want to license it out for mm-hmm. Criterion. There's always two sides of a deal that, yeah. <laughs> that need to come together. There it's are never... there are some interesting things that I'm I'm afraid once they they hit streaming after award season they just disappear because there aren't they aren't getting mm-hmm. physical releases. I, I want a copy of Tragedy of Macbeth so bad because a lot of the shots in it are fucking paintings and black and white paintings. They're stunning. Oh yeah, and the compression of streaming, no matter how good it is, still doesn't give you quite as good a picture as, you know, a 4K or a Blu-K, uh, Blu-ray release. Um, I'm concerned about Wes Anderson's oeuvre. You oh, know, that hit Netflix? Sp- yeah, that, the stuff on Netflix, these shorts. Um, I, th- I don't think that I would mean, be a every- problem. Everything else Anderson does always winds up on the Criterion collection at some point. I think he's the only director... Who has directed multiple? Who has multiple credits to his name? That has um, all of his work on Criterion. I don't think that'll be a problem because, as we have seen, Netflix doesn't have an issue with collaborating with Criterion for releases. Um, obviously, Marriage Story, The Irishman, uh, Prime is the same way. We've received uh, uh, Triangle of Sadness and. 
I had like uh, One Night in Miami and a few mm-hmm. others. Um, by the way, guys, if you haven't seen One Night in Miami, what the hell are you still doing wa- listening to us? Go watch that movie. Hit pause. Come back. <laughs> now that you're back, you're welcome. Going on. <laughs> Amazing. Um, but yeah, no, I yeah, – there I, are some things I feel like just you need to have it. Yeah, for, for – you know, and I understand it's probably not – coming all from the same person but netflix does seem kind of weirdly conflicted about physical media at times when you look <laughs> at them phasing out the dvd blu-ray by mail stuff which still kind of hurts um well that hurts their own pocket whereas criterion it, it's, it, it wasn't it's like earning them movies. a big enough profit yeah which which costs more to create than it does for them to yeah, and it, then, they're, it's, then the profit they're making off yeah, of it. It's, a, it's frustrating, too, because all those movies that you could have gotten through the DVD or the Blu-ray um, by mail option just, you know, weren't all duplicated on the streaming service. Mm. So but it was a great supplement to streaming services because there's a, there was a number of films on there that weren't available. TV shows that aren't available. I was talking to some people the other day who were... Eh, semi-movie buffs they're not the greatest ones in the world but um yeah they didn't even know that netflix had a dvd option only for 25 years the yeah no one freaking knows that anymore they they assume that once netflix went into streaming production uh they completely killed that no one knew it still was happening Mm -hmm. honest until i talked to you i didn't know it was still happening (laughs) so yeah, it, it, they did make a concerted effort to push towards streaming, but I think that... Which is, I think, part of the reason that declined. Well, yeah. And then it just cost more to, to create the discs, to distribute them, then they were well, getting no, they back weren't creating in. it. I mean, there was, they were just buying them from, you know, whatever... That's still... your Home Video. Or you're still one. buying and then distributing, mm-hmm. and it's it doesn't... It costs more than you're making. True. But the idea of consolidation into streaming only and making your offerings mostly stuff that you supply, you create, like all the t- TV shows that Netflix creates and stuff like that, I think is a net negative because we've lost some media. We've lost access as audiences as fans as scholars of these things we've lost access to so much over the years it's not that prints have vanished like a lot of silent film it's just meh. no one has it available for streaming right now the physical discs have been out of uh print for 10 years oh well too bad you just can't watch it and then I, I get what you're you, saying because, yeah. um, for example, Amelie, fantastic film, mm-hmm. um, was not available on streaming anywhere for like the past two, three years. Um, I happen to have a copy on Blu-ray, thank God. So that wasn't made difficult for me. But uh, yeah, now it's it, – I couldn't tell if that was a rights issue or a distribution issue or what was going on. But you could mm-hmm. not watch Amelie. No. And uh, actually, The Dreamers, uh, I know I talk about that one a lot, but it is a fantastic <laughs> film. Uh, Bernardo Bertolucci's The Dreamers from 2003 was actually on Max until I think about a month ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I had recently been watching it on Max and I went to log in to, to finish it and it was gone. And I'm like, okay. Uh, so they just took it off here. I wonder where they moved it to next. And then I pull, I, I pull it up on like Decider and on Google, and I'm searching to see where did it go. And it went into the ether. It's gone. <laughs> I was like, no. I was just recommending that to some friends. Um, so I had to go ahead and start digging through my uh, my discs to mm-hmm. to actually pull out a copy so I could fucking watch it um a great website to find stuff to tell you where it's streaming legally mm-hmm. is justwatch.com okay. I, I use it a lot when i'm like looking around for something 
or, you know, for both this or for the Monday night live show that I do over on the Indie Escape Network, mm. um, Generation Movie. If I'm like, oh, yeah, we're talking about this movie this week. I better go find a copy of it because I don't have <laughs> it here. And yeah. And it's like, oh, OK. Of course, we always make sure that that film, the film, <laughs> the films that we're planning to do there are available. Um, and even uh, what we're going to talk about this week, Suspiria. Both of them are available on streaming. Yes. Um, the original is available on Paramount Plus and Criterion. And because it was an Amazon film, the uh, remake is available. I don't know if it's a remake. Um, but I know. I, that's that's okay. what I find very interesting about this. The 2018 film that's called Suspiria, which shares a lot of similarities with the original version, um, is on Amazon Prime. Uh, so let's dive into that then. Woo! Okay. All, right, All right, here we go. Um, I saw the original Suspiria years ago. Mm-hmm. Liked it for what it was. Not my favorite um, uh, Jessica oh, Harper. Jessica Harper performance. Um, and I was, and I underst- I mean, I appreciated it more than I liked it. See, you know, and I understood where it kind of stood in Giallo films and that genre and where it stands um, and everything. But it wasn't one I went back to a lot. I think I watched it once or twice. Okay. And then rewatched it again this week uh, amidst everything else I've been doing uh, <laughs> for for this. And um, so that's why I was kind of a little standoffish about the uh, 2018 remake um, because I was like, you know, you're just asking for trouble here, I think. Um, and then when, you know, I heard the movie go is like two and a half hours long. When the original isn't like an hour lean, and a half, a lean ninety minutes. Yeah, yeah, it's it's lean and mean, and I'm like, that's not a lot of skeleton to hang extra meat on. What are you doing here, guys? <laughs> um, and but I wound up um liking the new one. I told you, <laughs> I told you. <laughs> I, I mean, it's it's nothing. I'm gonna go back and like rewatch just because I'm bored on a Friday night or something. Oh, I like, have. Well, let's let's go rewatch this. Um, yeah, when I want something that's just going to disturb me, that's a great one to watch. <laughs> oh yeah, there and there's some disturbing stuff in there, and uh, some things I like. And of course, I do like that they have Jessica Harper come back in a cameo, mm-hmm. and there are things about it though. I was like. Okay, yeah, I guess there was enough skeleton to hang some more meat onto this movie. It goes in different directions and it you know, arrives at a completely different ending. Um, and it definitely, I think, ultimately has a different thing on its mind than the original. And if you're going to remake something, I think maybe this is the way you do it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I, I have been saying this so many times. If you're going to remake something... Don't copy and paste the original work because then you're not putting your own stamp on it. Yes. This film, the the 2018 version of Suspiria is not a shot for shot remake. It is we're taking the the base basic skeleton and we're creating our own muscles, arteries, organs, mm-hmm. and then the skin on top of it. Which is not the same skin as an Argento film. Like, no. the original went for, you know, really garish lighting in terms of, like, the Giallo style. They were taking from the original, like, Snow White movie. Um, really, it, it hits your eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> and Lucas from 2018 is subtle. It's darker in terms of its palette. Um yeah, pops yeah, that's of color the, here or there, but not too much because yeah. we don't want to copy it's, the original. It's it's so Muted. much a pendulum swing in terms of production design. Oh yeah, and I'm not just saying you know because one looks like sets, you know, very set bound. One, you know, the original is almost a captive of its lower budget mm-hmm. in terms of its you know sets and things like that. But those work within the context of the film itself, I think. Um, whereas this new one, it's a lot of it's filmed on location. We're outside the school a lot more. Um, and it's the color palette is virtually non-existent. It's it's it pops. it's a half it's a half step away from being a black and white film. Yeah. 
but they, when they use red, man, they make it. They make it. Mm-hmm, the the rope costumes of the Volk dance. Yes, man, they stick out in your head. Oh gosh, yeah, that was one of the main images of the promotion too. Yeah, for me, it I I really liked that. It kind of reminded me of after uh, dyed material, like hanging on a like on a wash line, just after it had been pulled out. Okay. Um, because it felt like it was splashing across the actresses as they were moving and creating a new a new palette, pretty mm-hmm. much. I will say though, one thing I had trouble connecting with mm-hmm. in term in the new one is not not the setting of a ballet school, but the uh, time period it was set in nineteen seventy seven in Germany, still dealing with uh. You know, World War Two and the kind of social trauma from that. You're dealing with a terrorist um, incident that's ongoing in the background that is an actual historical terrorist incident. And there were some things I was like, you know what? I vaguely understand, you know, the this setting. I don't know it well enough to, un, you know, to really appreciate what the director is trying to say in terms of everything else in the film and i haven't had the chance to go off and read three books on (laughs) on on all of this or anything like that so so for that i i recognize that something's there but it didn't work for me okay i because of my lack of knowledge of that moment okay in german history and i can see why at least in part american audiences didn't show up for this movie because, you know, because, you know, that may have been off-putting. They're like, well, I don't know what's going on here, so why should I bother? Um, well, I mean, I don't think that's the major reason why American audience didn't show up for this film. I think the major reason is just uh, the IP name. The original Suspiria is such a, a marker of horror and of giallo films that... Oh my God! They're remaking a classic. How dare they? How dare they? The how dare they? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, big time. And I think you and I had that conversation. I vaguely remember <laughs> this in the car on the way to Philly for a critic screening in 2018. We probably we were did. stuck on the Schuylkill and we were having <laughs> this conversation. Sweet. That's always likely. Uh, <laughs> wow, it only took us five years to get you to watch it. <laughs> to get around to this movie, yeah. Honest, it took me five years to get around to the original. I didn't watch it until the, uh, this past weekend okay. for this podcast. So where do you stand then on the original? On the skeleton, not on the the media. <laughs> <laughs> so 13 minutes in and uh, our character of Pat Hingle and her friend uh, get killed and – my face went, I wish this is where it would be good to have a video podcast because my head was leaning back against the sofa and I'm like, okay, okay, this is, and we're off. (laughs) (laughs) And my head popped up. My eyes went wide and I'm like, Mm -hmm. they wasted no fucking time getting into this. Well, they only got 90 minutes. (laughs) Well, Uh, I didn't realize at the time just how short it was. Ah. Um, It's funny too because you, you, texted me about that you saw the video yeah and you sh- you shot like a little <laughs> surprise video and sent it to me and i and that happened in real time too that's yeah. the funny part and um what was what was funnier is you don't live too far away from me but it was like raining cats and dogs over here and it wasn't raining over there <laughs> no, and i was like nothing. i was like oh this is perfect weather to watch this movie and you're like what are you talking about <laughs> <laughs> But anyways, I'm yeah. sorry. No, it's okay. Um, I thought the the colors are, like I said, they hit your corneas. Uh, <laughs> I I think some of the shots are absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I can see where a lot of those could be taken for paintings as well. Um, the barbed wire sequence. Ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah, I yeah, actually it's... kind of curled up on the sofa i'm like oh uh, uh, no thank you no I, oh, no i don't want to see this i think <laughs> on my most recent re- rewatch which was this past week i finally thought wait a minute 
why do they need barbed wire and why are they storing it there? <laughs> I mean, it's a ballet school. What are you trying to keep out or in? Well, okay. Um, but still, it's like, well, let's hang out. You know, let's wad up all this barbed wire and stick it right here under a window. Yeah, I was yeah. thinking the same it, thing. I it like, seems, it seems you know, on its surface, it's it's crazy because you know ooh, you land in it and the more you wiggle in it the more you're screaming and writhing in pain the more you're causing more pain and it's awful but what the fuck is a ballet school doing with barbed wire <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> um i loved joan bennett i grew up watching the original dark shadows tv show yeah so like <laughs> seeing her in this and seeing her as elizabeth collins in in the show and i was like mm. and that was actually like a double hit and that one that really kind of hurt for me uh because this past week laura parker who played angelique our favorite witch on the dark shadows mm -hmm. uh passed away yes and so I was just like reminded of that as I was watching Suspiria, and I'm like, "Oh, Mrs. Collins, oh, Angelique." Like I was like, yeah, unintentional side <laughs> side consequence. Yeah, and I think her presence though definitely helps sell the gothicness of the original. Oh yeah, definitely. Now, the original it, is in a very classy... much a gothic horror film. I don't think the new one is. No, um, would would qualify. But overall, and I'm probably going to get death threats now, <laughs> I did not like the original Suspiria. Okay. I think it's um, too short, so much so that they don't go into a lot of what all this means. Uh, the character Sarah really just pissed me off because she's just so fucking nosy. About shit that doesn't concern her. Um, and, and honest, I don't see like the bad things happening to the the children at the school as a case of, well, the witches are out to do evil and that's the only way they get their power. I don't believe that bullshit. I think that's that's a I think that's a story spun because I'm sorry if you're send if you're paying a shit ton of money to send your kids to a world class ballet studio that has a reputation of its students dying, forget it. You're You'd be out of business. <laughs> so I think it's more of a case of the witches are reacting to the students getting all up in their shit. Mm hmm. So, so in a way, it's a it's a generational story about um, the rebellious youth of the '60s and '70s getting up in the witch's shit, and they're the establishment. Yeah. So, so that's an interesting way we could read this, and I'm not trying to force this on you. It just occurred to me as the way you were saying it. Would would I be correct in saying that is how you are kind of? I looking at I would it? agree. I would agree. But the thing is, is I actually. I did not like uh, the girls who were playing the students. It was just it going off of what you just said about the whole sixties and seventies, you know, the establishment versus mm -hmm. the rebellious youth. There, yes and no. I can see how that could be taken in, but using that comparison. The rebellious youth of the 60s and 70s were reacting to the establishment and breaking away from it. Here, they ain't reacting to shit. They're causing it. <laughs> it's the establishment reacting to them. Okay. okay. It's like I was just minding my own business here doing some spooky, scary vibes. You got up in my shit. You know my secret. Well... Sorry, now I gotta whack you. Mm -hmm. And then the next one comes along and couldn't mind her own beeswax, and you know, curiosity killed the cat. <laughs> That's the thing; they're too curious for their own good. Curiosity and killed the pat. <laughs> Jump out that window! <laughs> we ah! <laughs> <laughs> who put the who put the barbed wire here? 
but yeah, just overall did not like it. Thought it was too short. There wasn't enough explanation to a lot of things. It felt the performances at times are very serious and then they get really schlocky really quick Mm -hmm. and it took me out of what i was watching that's fair um i mean jessica harper's jessica harper's good in the serious moments but when she has to go into fright mode i don't believe any look on her face yeah there's like so forced three movies from around this time in her career that are considered like various levels of cult classic phantom of the paradise which she did in 74 Mm. this which was what 78 77 Mm. and uh shock treatment from 1980 the semi-sequel to rocky horror where she plays janet yeah and i would say this is probably the worst of her three and i may be biased because i really do like shock treatment i think shock treatment is her best performance of the three. Um, I'm not a big Phantom of the Paradise fan, but I think um, she's really good in it. Um, I am not a fan of the music in that movie. And I know people have excoriated me for this opinion. <laughs> but, hey. Speaking of music, hmm. now that we're, I can segue back into 2018. Okay. Can we talk about Tom York's hauntingly beautiful score? Really good work. Yeah. Really good work. I really love the music of this. I've I've used it in, in multiple things as well. It it's just I I think it helps cement the vibe that this film is going for, which is disturbing, which is haunting. It's on par with um I'm trying to think of some other disturbing horror films (laughs) Uh, i I think it goes for and i've seen bits and pieces of it so i'm going to use this as a a comparison even though i've not actually seen the full film and i told you i'm watching it later on this week the others okay It, it has like that serious garish dark vibe to it um of supernatural drama and suspense than it does, you know, colorful. It's it's supposed to be a little more haunting mm-hmm. and hard to watch. Yeah, that's 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 a good uh, comparison there. I would I would not disagree there. Um, the music definitely you know helps to create that vibe along with the the drab uh, German <laughs> country well not countryside cityscape that this movie is set in. It definitely puts you in a place and a mental state of nothing good is going to happen here. Yeah. It's very depressing. Yeah. This is not a good date movie or not at least not a first date movie. (laughs) Um, Unless you guys met at a goth club. But um, (laughs) yeah, it's 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 more goth than gothic. Yeah, I would say. Um, And I. Don't want to say goth in kind of like a disparaging way. I know I was just glib about it a moment ago. But yeah, it's it's much more interesting in terms of the psychological, the, psych- the psychology it's trying to create within yeah. people, the viewer. And uh, I got to talk performances because uh, throughout this film, there are just performances on top of performances that are really fucking good. Mm-hmm. And we got to talk about the queen at the top, <laughs> not Dakota Johnson, although she's really good. Mm-hmm. She's really good. We got to talk Tilda. Tilda Swinton, baby. Uh, yeah, she's <laughs> she kind of shows up, knocks it out of the park three times. She's a monster in this. And I love that even yeah. one character, when this film was released, um, if you watch the trailer, there's apparently a German actor, Lutz something something, mm-hmm. as our professor. Um, that's Tilda Swinton in prosthetics. Some what? great prosthetics. Great acting under mm-hmm. said prosthetics. Oh, yeah. It's... Um... It's not showy when other times you see actors doing multiple roles. Like uh, Eddie Murphy. <laughs> Eddie Murphy, Mike Myers. I'm looking at you guys. Sometimes even the great Peter Sellers. Um, well, they're all more comedy actors than they are drama. Yeah. Um, and the comedy is kind of like, oh, there's so-and-so under the makeup. 
in in a drama when you see something like this, you start looking. Wait, is there supposed to be a kind of you know what is the symbolism of having the characters play these two roles? And you have her as the mother figure, as the head of the ballet school, Madame and, Blanc, and a father figure as the professor who you know is the psychiatrist who uh, you know they go you know some of these girls go to uh, to confess their fears about what's going on. So it does kind of become a patriarchy versus matriarchy kind of a struggle in terms of these two characters and to have them played by the same actor i think is an interesting thing and i i will always stand by this argument tilda is one of those few actors not only do they have an androgynous look to them but they just can seamlessly go back and forth between embodying the masculine or embodying the feminine that's why she works so well as um uh, it, it was gabriel that she played right in constantine yes um or i couldn't no. tell was it gabriel or michael one, one of the archangels. one of the archangels yes. and then on top of it orlando <laughs> yes <laughs> you're, you're, that that's absolutely like the... <laughs> that's a tailor-made role for her exactly um but she does both so well mm-hmm. that you can completely believe it. And she has a slight air of otherworldliness around her. She does have the, an ethereal presence. Like, yeah. like if anybody had ever cast her and David Bowie as siblings, it would have been believable. There's actually – I believe there is a photo out there of those two together oh. where she's dressed as David Bowie standing next to Bowie dressed as her. Oh, yes. That's yes, yes, right. I have seen that. Yeah. I have seen that. That so. is definitely the film I would have loved to freaking see is those two together. Yes. Yeah. That would have uh. been – oh. <laughs> yes, indeed. Oh, my heart. Yes. But fantastic performances all around from Dakota Johnson, Mia Goth. Uh, you also have Chloe Grace Moretz. Just so many good performances. I love how that film really kind of talks about uh, femininity, female power, female rage mm-hmm. through magic and and sensuality and bloodlust in a society, German, which is considered to be more uh, – when you, when you talk about – Germany, you don't say motherland, you say fatherland. The fatherland, yes. So it, it's, it's definitely it's more a of, patriarchal society. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there was a lot to really unpack with that film. And man, the imagery. I, I There's one particular scene that will always stand out to me, and it's the first major death in the film. You know which one I'm talking mm-hmm. about. Go ahead. Yeah. The mirror scene. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yes, it's... No, just talk about it. Uh, it. Well, I know your love for mirrors. And... I, I do love a good mirror shot, but the, mm-hmm. the con- that's a contortionist. It's disturbing. <laughs> and at first, I was a little, you know, because I only had the experience with the original Suspiria. I was like, well, we're just giving away the whole secret of the show here, aren't we? You know, that these are witches and not that there's a mystery to unsolve. And that's kind of the point where the of the scene, though, is to say – no, we are a different mo- movie than the original. We are a different type of story that we're telling, and we're telling it in a much different way. And yes, it's horrific and disturbing. And you're like, oh my gosh, are they making Dakota Johnson do this kind of magic and she doesn't realize it and she's therefore killing her friend? There's some. There's a tragic irony here. Mm-hmm. That their power comes through their dancing, through yes. their movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's fucking disturbing as shit watching that scene. Um, watching how her body can just move and contort. Even just by the end of it, seeing her <laughs> bend over like a damn pretzel pissing herself was – you're sitting there going, oh, this beats the barbed wire scene. Yes, yeah. It's um, – you know, the barbed wire scene is kind of like – The pain is coming from an exterior source, Mm -hmm. the razor wire cutting into uh, the character, the knife slitting her throat ultimately to free her of that pain. Um, Here, it's coming from within. Within. It's it's someone's own body betraying them. Yeah, and having no control over. And that is absolutely far more seen. 
far more scary and horrifying. Yes. Yeah. Um. Yeah. The the dancing on this is is stunning. I I love how when you think about it, you think of flowy and and graceful kind of as we see in the original. It went for a more classic take on ballet. Mm-hmm. Here they're doing more. Um, interpretive dance yes um martha graham is mentioned at one point yeah um yeah so i'm certain that it feels like that's kind of a a source that they were drawing from Mm. in terms of how they were designing these movements that these uh women were doing you and i both know that through the theater company i work for we take on uh, a different style of theatrical philosophy we don't use so much stanislavski as you know arto and grotowski Mm -hmm. and a lot of that has to do with or some of it has to do with movement based work suspiria definitely has that (laughs) yes and and that was one thing i was like i'm reasonably sure uh justin the person who runs your company is a fan of this movie i'm sure sure he's talked about it before around me i couldn't remember an exact instance but as i was watching all that movement based things going on in here i was like oh yeah this is definitely a justin movie yeah um when i actually joined the company and i was i was doing my readings and research and studying and all that uh this was definitely one of those movies he had me watch to kind of be able to visualize an idea of how we would bring that onto stage Mm um i just the whole volk sequence is gorgeous to me um there's a rigidness but there's still a flow and it does feel like through the movements there is witchcraft if i saw that stuff happening in front of me and i was just an audience member i would be terrified of what they were about to conjure into that room (laughs) and i think that's kind of the the instance the power that our director luca here was going Mm -hmm. for in this film um really quickly i want to hit on uh, the end because I was just about to bring um, that up. <laughs> yeah, because one movie is about escape and one movie is about journeying to find acceptance into a group. Mm-hmm. And I think that is obviously the most, you know, from a story point, the most obvious uh, difference between the two um, thematically as well. Um, the original, it's a gothic. Jessica Harper's trying to escape uh, the clutches of this coven and here it's almost like um they're running coven 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 (laughs) um here you know in the 2018 version the character is moving towards them And, and ultimately in a way that um i'm not sure actually destroys her and allows something new to exist within her mm in terms of her identity or just in the way she looks at things. Uh, and that's fine. That's, I mean, that's a discussion that can be had and argued about. And I like that the movie is a little ambiguous on that. Um, but I'm also, you know, it's, it, it says, you know, Oh, this kind of thing is not necessarily evil because it's providing a place for these people. Honest, I don't think we have anything else to say on that. I think that's the perfect ending. Oh, okay, ending. okay. I'm, I was hoping for a response, but I'll take, yes, you're absolutely right, Rich, as a yes. great response. <laughs> that's exactly what I meant to say. Okay. <laughs> and with that, I think that just about wraps us up for this week. And as we said before, the original version of Suspiria can be found on the Paramount Plus and Criterion Channel streaming app, whereas the 2018 Uh, version of Suspiria can be found on Amazon Prime. If you really, really, really want to do a double feature one night, you want to try something new, give both of these a go. They are not the same film and both are worthy of your time. Yeah, it's a good four hours of movie altogether, but it's well worth your time. Yeah. We will be back next time, though, with a second double feature remake uh, review there. 
I know. What is going on with That's us? Craziness. We've got ideas. We have we have thoughts. So we're actually going to do them. Uh, and to close out spooky season, it's not going to be one, but it's going to be two fright nights. We'll take a look at the original 80s film and the more recent remake there. Spoiler, they both have the exact same runtime. So, <laughs> so. Which we, we just we, discovered. We can't just kind of go back and forth about how one's like super short and one's super long. Um, when they both equal an hour and 46 minutes yes, long. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Remember, you can find us online at pigpicturepod.com, and we are now available on iTunes and Google Play, so either use the link in the show notes post or head directly there, search and hit subscribe. And if you like what you're listening to, please leave a positive review, because that always helps us connect with new listeners. We'll be back next time with a double feature review of Fright Night, right here on the Big Picture Podcast. <laughs>